While independent Puritans tried to process and understand the course that their revolution was taking, Royalists and Presbyterians felt a renewed sense of hope. At the same time as Hugh Davenport spoke in New England about the possibility of the restoration of the English monarchy, the same sense spread unspoken in Virginia. And for different reasons, things were looking up in Maryland, too. You're listening to Rejects and Revolutionaries with Sarah Tinsalvola, a podcast tracing the origins of America from the Tudor era to the 20th century. The few surviving letters from England to Virginia after Cromwell's dissolution of the Rump Parliament highlighted how tense and dangerous life seemed there. Parliamentarians were refusing to pay taxes because they'd been passed by Cromwell with no input from Parliament. Royalists were refusing to pay taxes because they'd been passed by Cromwell with no input from Parliament. And they were also being pushed to pay an additional 10% tax. And going further, Royalists organized yet another major series of uprisings. The most notable of these plans was to take over the royalist-leaning towns of Salisbury, Newcastle, York, and Winchester, while encouraging smaller uprisings in Nottinghamshire and Cheshire, and then to assassinate Cromwell and welcome Charles II back as King of England. The plan was thwarted, seven leaders executed, and most of the rest transported to Barbados and other Caribbean islands. A few were imprisoned, including Willoughby, our old Barbados governor, who spent his time after his return to England helping to plot and carry out royalist rebellions. He was imprisoned a couple of times for this, but I mean, he of all people could not be sent back to the colonies. Now, first things first, Cromwell finally decided who should run Maryland, and he actually decided in favor of Lord Baltimore. Baltimore had been arguing his case for over a year by now, countering every point raised against him, and it worked. In addition to these arguments, there were also the practical issues of the Dutch and the Swedes on the Delaware who would take over if Maryland collapsed, and of Virginia, whose government still wanted control of Maryland, while it could barely control its own colony. Plus, the execution of prisoners was a big deal, and Baltimore said that he had poured way too much money into the colony to not be allowed to get a return on his investment. Cromwell praised Baltimore as a lawyer and businessman, ruled in his favor, and ordered Bennett's government to back off. Baltimore, appointed Josias Fendel as his new governor, instituted a draft with a larger militia, ordered a survey to clear up all border disputes, published the results of that survey as a detailed map, and invited a new wave of immigrants to the colony, focusing this time on recruiting people from France, Sweden, Germany, and the Netherlands rather than England. Apart from reinstating the Toleration Act, though, he largely abandoned his original vision and adopted a modern form of government in Maryland. 
there were still Puritans in Providence, which was now again Anne Arundel, who refused to acknowledge Fendel. But in exchange for their loyalty, Baltimore and Fendel met their demands. Concessions had been made, but Maryland was, finally, stable again by 1659. News of the state of affairs in England encouraged Virginia enough to lead it into a period of arguable rebellion to the English government. Bennett's term as governor ended around this time thanks both to this and the Battle of the Severn. Apart from Maryland, he had spent his term focusing exclusively on practical issues like bringing Irish transportees to Virginia, handling issues of expansion, and sending people beyond the Tidewater region of the Chesapeake to find new places for colonists to go. He couldn't really do much else, even though Cromwell would have liked him to. As part of the plan for expansion, he also implemented a reservation system, the first in the Chesapeake, for the more hostile tribes like the Chickahominy and Pamunkey. The General Assembly declared that troubles with the neighboring tribes had been caused by two particulars, our extreme pressures on them and their wanting something to hazard and lose beside their lives. The English were pushing too hard, they said, and the Indians had nothing to lose by trying to push back. So, they would designate some space for them, getting some input from the Werewances, and the colony would vow never to make any Indian child a slave who was brought to the English to be cared for. This does seem to have won some support for the English in those tribes because their problems were being verbally recognized by the Virginia government and land was being designated for them, which the English were agreeing not to take. Schools were also being set up, but not by the Virginia government. One was set up by the decidedly royalist Richard Lee, and another by the probably Puritan William Whittington. And perhaps the most interesting thing that Bennett himself had been working on was trying to encourage the diversification of the Virginia economy. Under his guidance, Virginia agreed to pay 4,000 pounds of tobacco to recruit an Armenian silk maker named George to come to the colony to try to figure out how to make it a silk-making hub. He ordered people to devote a percentage of their land to mulberry trees for silk growing, and he promised hefty rewards for anyone who was able to make significant amounts of money producing anything that wasn't tobacco. And there would be an additional hefty reward if what they produced was silk. But in 1655, Bennett's term was up, and as he was pushed out, Cromwell tried to impose his own governor in Virginia. Again, much like Charles I had done in Massachusetts. And much like Charles, he highlighted his own weakness by failing to do so. Instead, Bennett was replaced by Edward Diggs, who was either the most moderate guy ever, or more likely, a very patient royalist. 
Under him, it is very easy to see Virginia's royalist sentiments bubbling toward the surface. Most notably, the colony started offering exorbitant amounts of money to recruit ministers. 20 pounds sterling, or half a year's average wages, for anyone who would import one. And there would also be tax exemptions for minister households, including up to six servants. The people in charge of vetting these potential recruits, though, and determining whether they or the people who transported them were worthy of this reward were staunch Anglicans who had left England in the wave of distressed cavaliers after Cromwell's victory. It was yet another underhanded way to strengthen Virginia's royalist Anglicanism and subvert Puritan authority. The other interesting thing that happened during Diggs's term was that a group of six to seven hundred Indians from an unknown tribe settled within the boundaries of Virginia English society. They seemed to have been Iroquois who had moved down from the New York City area, but regardless, Virginia prepared a militia which would join forces with the Chickahominy and Pamunkey to drive these people out. Without war, if possible. Militia leader Edward Hill attacked the settlers unnecessarily, and in the resulting confrontation, the English were defeated so badly that it became known as the Battle of Bloody Run. The Chickahominy and Pamunkey in particular were wiped out, and their leaders were killed. Hill was blamed for the defeat, deprived of all his offices and military rank, and forced to pay the costs of making peace. And perhaps because of this disaster, Diggs was replaced as governor after only a year. And the man who took his place was none other than Samuel Matthews, long-term leader of Virginia's Puritan faction. And it wasn't long before his council and the royalist-leaning elected portion of the General Assembly, known as the House of Burgesses, had a falling out. A year into his term, on April 1st, 1658, Matthews tried to dismiss Virginia's General Assembly, Cromwell-style. And this led to a minor revolution in the colony's government. From subsequent events and communication, it seems as if the Burgesses were pushing back against things that Matthews wanted to do, dragging their feet and simply not cooperating with him on even the most basic of business matters. In response to their uncooperativeness, Matthews tried to dismiss them so that he could govern alone with his thoroughly Puritan council, getting things done how he wanted when he wanted. The Burgesses responded that a governor didn't have the power to dissolve an elected legislature. They said that they would work with him to get colony affairs managed as quickly as possible, but that he didn't have the right to dissolve the assembly. And to this, Matthews said that he was going to send the question to Cromwell. Realistically speaking, Cromwell, the Puritan who had been ruling on his own since dissolving his own legislative assembly and who had wanted to impose his own government in Virginia, 
would side with Matthews. So the Burgesses pushed back. They drew up a resolution to assert their own power, saying that not only were the Burgesses the only people who could dismiss the assembly, but also that the Burgesses were the people in charge of the election and appointment of the governor and council. They then declared all former elections to be null and void, and though they reappointed Matthews as governor, they made him take a new oath of office the next day. The act of accepting that new oath of office would confirm their supremacy. And Matthews agreed. He still had his hopes in Cromwell's intervention. And then, because the Burgesses were the ones in charge of the colony, They ordered Claiborne to give them the colony records and appointed two royalists, John Carter and Warham Horsemanden, to be the people in charge of them. They didn't start governing the colony in a non-Puritan way, and they didn't overturn anything that previous Puritan governments had done. Nor did they kick any Puritan leaders out of their offices But what the House of Burgesses had just done was big. They had put it on the record that the Burgesses were in charge of the colony, and that by parliamentary values, royalists were in control of Virginia. Matthew's only hope was that Cromwell would back him up, and he went along with the Burgesses' demands until he received a reply to his letter. But when he received communication from England, it didn't address his question at all. Instead, it was an announcement that Oliver Cromwell had died and been replaced as Lord Protector by his son, Richard. The announcement ordered that Richard be proclaimed in Virginia, and Matthews did just that, but a couple months later, he died too. And it was with Matthews' death that the importance of what the Burgesses had just done became apparent, because the person that they now picked to replace him was none other than William Berkeley. Berkeley had been supposed to return to England, but he'd been allowed to stay in Virginia by the colony's Puritan governments. As long as he stayed quiet, making sure he left wasn't worth the fight for them, and as long as Cromwell's government was too strong to topple, it wasn't worth the fight for Berkeley to do anything but remain quiet. So, he'd been working in his plantation, biding his time, in yet another example of Virginia's interregnum detente. Now that Cromwell and Matthews were both dead, though, and the royalist leading House of Burgesses was the highest authority in the colony, the Burgesses chose William Berkeley to be the new governor of Virginia. He was declared in Lower Norfolk County first on March 9, 1659, and then in the colony as a whole on March 13th. And then, at least according to tradition, they followed Berkeley's appointment by proclaiming Charles II as king. Officially, we don't know if this is true. There's no documentation of the event, but also, even if it happened, of course there would be no documentation of the event because it would have essentially been a rebellion against England's government. 
The mere act of appointing Berkeley was close enough to being a rebellion, and, in fact, the mere fact that royalists could have retaken the House of Burgesses was evidence, at the very least, of severe neglect of Commonwealth orders. And because of all this, the still Puritan Governor's Council did push back against Berkeley as governor, and in response to that, Berkeley told the assembly that they should probably choose someone else for the time being. He thanked them for electing him, but said that at that time, controversy surrounding him would keep him from being able to do the things that Virginia needed done, and which someone else could do. He suggested that they make choice of one who hath more vigorous qualities to manage and support your affairs, and who hath more dexterity to untie these knots which I can neither unloose nor break amongst the council. When they agreed to his advice, he gave a brief speech encouraging the colony and telling them that it was the right thing to do. You have given me a great treasure, but in vain except you help me carry it to a place of safety. You have raised a high expectation of me, but you must entrust and prompt me how to satisfy it. You have laid high honors on me, but accept your help to support me under them, they will sink me into disgrace. And so, instead of taking the governorship, Berkeley left Virginia for England and Europe. It's funny, when he was ordered to return to England, he stayed, only to leave when elected governor again, but this was a sign of Virginia's hope. The most famous royalist ballad declared, All's to no end, for the times will not mend till the king enjoys his own again. Yes, this I can tell, that all will be well when the king enjoys his own again. They'd been singing it for 16 years, first openly, then in secret. And now, royalists on both sides of the Atlantic sensed a possibility that that time was approaching. And when it did, every problem would be undone. Every Puritan innovation would be reversed. No more empire, no more direct control of the colonies. No more being forbidden to trade with the Dutch. Colonies that had been left alone before would be left alone again, taxes would be lowered, religious unity restored, Christmas revived, and all of the interference in people's everyday lives rolled back. And most of all, in colonist eyes, no more Navigation Act. More than anything, that act fueled royalist support in the colonies, with the desire for free trade pushing all but the most dedicated, independent Puritans to embrace the king's cause. If there was any possibility of returning to royal rule, this was probably the time. When William Penn had offered to help Charles II invade England, Charles's response had been to wait and be patient, and now that waiting seemed to be coming to an end. Hugh Davenport had acknowledged the fact in New England, and now Berkeley was willing to bet on it, declining the governorship in favor of meeting with the exiled king. To take a break from the relentless optimism, though, 
Bermuda was still floundering. Rebuilding from all the problems we've previously discussed was already slow. And then, in 1656, the colony had its first attempted slave revolt. Like every American colony, Bermuda had a growing group of Irish transportation victims. Like the West Indian colonies, it had a large group of slaves, and unlike most other colonies, it also had a large group of free Africans who had left former Spanish territories. A lot of these people were serving as indentured servants, much like the English did, as a way to get a foothold and invest in a future life in the colony. This group formed perhaps the largest group of people moving to Bermuda, and to prevent their becoming the majority, the colony increased the term of indenture for blacks to 99 years. Obviously, this meant for life. Any free black who moved to Bermuda to start a new life would be made, for all intents and purposes, a slave. So free, or technically free, blacks were unhappy, and the Irish indentured servants were also not thrilled to be in Bermuda. And the colony's social system was still weak enough that there were openings for a possible rebellion. The plan was that a dozen slaves and servants, led by a free black man named William Force, would murder their English masters. Two of the servants reported the plan at the last minute, though, and colonists arrested the conspirators. Two of the leaders were hanged, while Force was sent to Eleutheria in the Bahamas. And then, all of Bermuda's free blacks were given a choice. They could follow Force to the Bahamas, or they could become slaves. Most of them left. For the slaves who remained, laws were put in place that were so violent and draconian that thankfully no colonists actually followed them. Slaves, the government ordered, were not allowed to trade, not allowed to sell tobacco, and they were required to be in their quarters by 30 minutes after sunset, unless they had a pass. Any Englishman who met a slave on the roads after this time was ordered to shoot them on sight. The penalty for failing to shoot the slave would be a fine of a hundred pounds of tobacco. Like I said, no Bermudian ever actually followed this law, and during this time a group of slaves did manage to escape the island. And it was a year later that Bermuda had its second attempted revolt, this time led more clearly by Irish transportees. These transportees developed a policy of strict non-compliance with the English. They did no work, harassed people, and found every opportunity they could to cause problems for the English. If they were asked to transport a cask of rum, they drank it. They surrounded people on the roads and assaulted them, and they simply refused to live within the island's already fragile society. 
The government warned colonists to get rid of their Irish indentured servants and said that they would be held liable and fined if the transportees working for them did anything wrong. But the problems continued. In fact, at least one Scottish transportee joined forces with the Irish enslaved, and there was yet another escape attempt, though this one failed. And then, the Irish announced publicly that unless they were given their liberty, they'd join forces with the slaves and take it by force. They said they would cut the throats of any English person who stood in their way to freedom. In response to this announcement, the government disarmed every Irish person and every slave, made it illegal for any Bermudian to buy any more Irish indentures for any reason whatsoever, and ordered the Irish to be confined under guard any time the colony had to do anything that would leave its population vulnerable. They also ordered that any black or Irish person who was caught meeting with even one other black or Irish person would be whipped. There was no uprising, and soon the Irish left Bermuda. But it was in Barbados, as is so often the case, where the story of the years of Cromwell's protectorate government were most interesting of all. Colonists there were, like we said, pretty angry at Cromwell at this point. They were still refusing to enforce the Navigation Act, with courts simply finding everyone in violation of it not guilty and sending them on their way. They were still upset with the burdens of the Western design, and thanks to their wealth, the increasingly imperial nature of English colonization always impacted them first. And so, as they had done a couple times in the past, Barbados made yet another move which would foreshadow North American revolutionary sentiment. In December of 1659, Barbados sent a petition to England requesting self-government. Specifically, the colony wanted to appoint its own governor and mint its own money. And it wanted the ability to elect two members of parliament to represent the colony in London. At this point, it said, the English government was treating Barbados as if it was a part of England. Barbados paid taxes, taxes which were too high for comfort, and its colonists lived directly under the laws passed by the English government. Because of this, the colony should have representation in that government. It was absolutely wrong that Barbadians would be treated like people in England when it came to the impact of legislation and taxation, but treated as less than Englishmen when it came to representation. The balance had been disturbed by recent changes in England, and they would like it to be restored. Richard Cromwell's government gave Barbados none of what it asked for, and instead, it got rid of Searle as Barbados's governor and replaced him with Modiford, who was still deeply unpopular for his support of the Western design. But the issue of taxation without representation had been raised and not addressed by the English government, and that's important. 
and in Barbadian minds, this would be yet another reason to hope for the restoration of the monarchy. The thing that had a more immediate impact, though, was the plight of transported indentured servants in Barbados. This time, it wasn't the Irish, but instead it was Englishmen transported after that failed royalist rebellion that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. And this time, it wasn't a servant rebellion, but instead it was another petition to England and an accompanying pamphlet entitled England's Slavery or Barbados Merchandise. By 1659, some of the earliest transportation indentures were ending. A term of indenture was seven years, so that meant that everyone who'd been transported since 1652 was now released. That includes everyone who had been transported prior to 1652 was now released. That includes everyone who had been sent while the actual wars were going on, and then some. If they wanted to return to England, though, they would have to pay their own ship fare, and that meant that virtually none of these people could go home. But a handful could, and did. And that handful came with stories that weren't that great, and caused people to question the system at least a little bit. But in 1659, two royalist rebels named Marcellus Rivers and Oxenbridge Foyle sent documents back to England describing their situation in detail. They had been part of the force which planned to take over Salisbury in that 1655 royalist rebellion, but the plot had been thwarted before they even approached the city. They hadn't been caught red-handed doing anything, and then there hadn't been any sort of a trial to find them guilty of participation in the plot. A fair trial was a basic English right, but they'd not only been imprisoned without a trial, they had been imprisoned and then sent to Barbados to do seven years of insanely difficult manual labor without a trial. They'd worked at mills and furnaces, dug in the dirt, fed little more than potatoes. They'd been bought and sold from one planter to another, whipped for no reason, and forced to live worse than the island's animals. And if that weren't bad enough, Rivers and Foyle were gentlemen. No one could dismiss this as the case of a couple common criminals. They were members of established, old, important families. Neither the lack of a fair trial nor treating gentlemen that way was okay, but the two combined was enough to create yet another scandal for the protectorate government. So now, in addition to everything else, people started to talk about the protectorate government as being a source of tyranny and degrading labor. People rushed to speak out against what happened, in a way that's probably familiar to those of us in the modern world. So, a ship's captain who himself had helped transport people now condemned the colonists who would have bought the indentures, saying, I abhor the thoughts of setting a hundred pounds upon any man's person. Regicide Edmund Ludlow said that the late Cromwell 
had lightly dispensed of English lives in the West Indies and English liberties at home. And another MP said that if transportation continued, our lives will be as cheap as those of the Negroes. But it wasn't just people rushing to distance themselves. Henry Vane, who himself had just been released from prison, and who, for his flaws, was at least true to his principles, denounced what had happened to Rivers and Foyle as nothing short of barbarous. It was yet another scandal, yet another cause of disillusionment, and yet another event which made people ready for a change that would return England to what it had been before the wars, to reverse a revolution that ever more people were convinced had been a big mistake. And that is where we'll stop for today. Next episode, we're going to go back up to New England to see exactly what was happening there at this time. <laughs>